Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Culture File Debate with me, Luke Clancy, and our panel. This time we're trying to think a little bit about AI beyond the hype cycle, which has seen technologies from remarkably literary chatbots to slick image and sound generation tools ascend recently to the status of sliced bread slash new mousetraps before collapsing like a big white elephant slash balloon hit by a missile. But in a way, that kind of discussion is noise in the conversation about how AI is seeping into our art and culture, because outside the hysteria that bubbles up every now and then, artificial life goes on. Artists are discovering what the new technology has to offer their work, and researchers carry on exploring what could and what should happen as these technologies become embedded in our lives. As we come eye to eye and ear to ear with fascinating sounds and images created with AI, how much does that make us misunderstand the nature of our technology and our relationship to it? And on this episode of the Culture File Debate, we're going to hear from some of those involved in framing and using this tech to unpick those coulds and woulds and indeed the shoulds. So joining us in the discussion this time, we have a voice familiar to regular listeners of Culture File, where she regularly brings us her postcards from the speculative edge, Things Know Things, but she's also Professor of Composition at the University of Oxford, as well as one of Ireland's most celebrated contemporary composers. Her work, a late anthology of early music, combined her voice and machine learning to create a radical rethink of some familiar music. Hello, Jennifer Walsh. Hi, how are you doing, Luke? Very good. Good, thank you. Good to see you there. Also joining us this time, we have Abiba Bahani, an Ethiopian-born cognitive scientist who works at the intersection of machine learning, algorithmic bias and critical race studies, as well as uncovering the large-scale image data sets at the heart of much AI carried racist and misogynistic labels. She's written about robot rights versus human rights and about algorithmic injustice. She's a senior research fellow at the Mozilla Foundation researching trustworthy AI. Hello, Abiba. Hello. Nice to be here. Um, and our final guest this time is Andreas Guadamas, who is a reader in intellectual property at the University of Sussex, researching, among other things, artificial intelligence and copyright and smart contracts. He blogs at Technolama, where he keeps an eye on AI and IP, at, at least when he doesn't let an AI write his posts, which, to be honest, he's only done once. Hello, Andres. Hello, uh... Thanks for the invitation. So I wanted to ask you a, a question for all of you to think about. We're talking about AI, and, I, and I'm wondering about an experience that a lot of people have when they think that there is something more going on inside their technology than code being run. Obviously, if you're involved at the um, meaty end of the code, you do realize the code is always there. But even at that level, I wonder, can you remember what occasion you were closest to believing there was something more than code going Abiba. The way I started working around AI is by auditing large-scale data sets that are used for training and validating AI systems. So my relationship with AI has always been to point out its limitations, to examine the biases and other undesirable contents in the data set but also downstream impacts of the AI itself. So coming from that perspective, it has never entered my mind that there is anything more than code. <laughs> and also when you are doing the really dirty, fine-grained work, looking at like really boring 
horrible data every day. And when you are playing with models, giving them various prompts and seeing what they return, you see all the errors, you see all the all the tiny little things that trip them. So coming from all this background, it's really difficult to even entertain the idea that there is anything merely <laughs> anything more than code. That's a hard never to start off there. Exactly. Andres? I've been using on and off some of these systems since back in 2015, the old uh, Google Deep Dream. And I always knew that it was code back then. Uh, then I started using some of the some of the chat applications and I wasn't impressed either. It's not until I started using some of the image applications, particularly the most sophisticated latest versions of uh, things like Stable Diffusion and MidJourney, that I started getting, hmm, <laughs> logically I feel and I know this is not intelligent, this is just code. But there were a couple of moments that I felt compelled to at least be a little bit impressed. Um, I was playing with uh, Midjourney, uh, one of the image applications, and I just typed Cassandra in Troy because I was thinking about Cassandra, how Cassandra was warning about all of these horrible things that were going to happen and nobody believed her. And I think she's probably the patron saint of artificial intelligence uh, research. I just typed that and the image that I got back had something that really impressed me. I know it's just code and it's just me putting perhaps a little bit more, uh, too much of my own personality into this, but it really touched me. I, I have to say it, it, it touched something that is usually reserved for human art. And that was when I think, oh, there's something interesting happening here. The second was I was using ChatGPT like almost everyone else in the world. And I typed my name and ChatGPT knew who I was. And I felt I finally made it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The AI knows who I am. So, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, have, have you had those kind of experiences or have you managed to shake yourself free of them? I both have and haven't. And I suppose... This brings me to sort of one of the most important features, I think, in the way that we experience AI right now is it, we're sort of like children. Maybe if you research it, you're somebody who's like a child who believes in Santa Claus, but also understands that Santa Claus is not real. So you can sort of suspend your belief if you want just to sort of be lost in the magic of a mid-journey prompt returning uh, an astonishing image. But at the same time, you have a very clear idea of what's going on under the hood. I did a project in 2018 with the Turkish uh, artist and technologist uh, Memo Acton, where I spent a year making uh, video recordings of myself improvising. And then Memo coded together this coalition of neural networks, which worked together so that I could improvise with this network live and it would generate video of me live as well as audio live. And in order for that to be a successful performance, I have to think this is another being. Like I have to willingly suspend my disbelief because I have to just commit as an artist in that moment to thinking this is another being and I'm interacting with another being and that's what's happening. Even though I know it's another being that you know, it's really a network of different neural networks and that I know exactly um, what data it's been trained on. I know how limited it is. I know how Memo did a stunning job with the coding, but it's also really dumb. 
it can only generate pictures of me. It can't generate pictures of other people because that's all it's been trained on. That to me is a very interesting experience to have as a performer. Um, so somebody who's coming to this um, hugely interested, but the the outputs of my interest are usually performances or albums or exhibitions. But that sort of feeling of what it feels like to suspend that disbelief. That's uh, all, all three versions of it there. I think you're kind of um, talking about it there, Jennifer, as though it is our relationship with an, an AI might be one we perform, you know, that we pretend to believe in the drama that we're taking part in, in at any one moment, which I mean, I, I guess has perhaps its its pratfalls. But one of the things I'm, I'm interested in, and maybe Jennifer, you'll, you'll guide us through this a little bit, is that this interest in working with AI, I mean, I think in music in particular, there's long been an impulse to see what the machines could generate for us, what a relationship between somebody who works as a composer and somebody who, uh, oh, there I go, somebody, <laughs> a set of code that works as a composer can do together. Maybe um, tell us a little bit about where, where that where that history is. Well, there's a long history of, you know, whether it's a scientist or a composer being interested in some sort of algorithmic composition. So you have people like Athanasius Kircher, you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, coming up with these sort of machines where you can generate, you know, sort of hymns. We don't think Mozart actually wrote the dice game compositions. We think his publisher probably did it in order to make money. So it's also tied in with commerce when you have generative composition, because it means the more you can generate, uh, the more money you can make. And certainly Certainly with Kircher, his, you know, musical organ, um, he was interested in being able to generate hymns so that missionaries could have more music at their fingertips to evangelize people. So the second we start talking about AI, we're instantly talking about global systems of power. We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about all these things immediately. We can trace those roots back. But then at the same time, you get fantastic projects like George Lewis's Voyager. You know, and George Lewis came to fantastic composer in his, I think he's either turning 70 or just in his 70s now. Um, sorry, George, if I've given you a higher age than I should. But George Lewis doing his Voyager project, which is a project that uh, he's coming at it from jazz and from improvisation. And he's saying, OK, well, you know, you can take this system and you can have humans improvise it and see this very different relationship play out on stage, which is really wonderful. And to do it sort of feedback in the cybernetic sense. Uh, so there's quite a different range of things that you can do. C certainly a lot of what I see now is a lot of sort of off the shelf products like Amadeus Code and Iva, which is Ava or Iva. There's so many different companies with an added I after the A that's in the name of the company. Um, but like Iva produces what I would call sort of Game of Thrones style television music, you know, so if you're producing maybe a, a TV show and you need to produce 40 hours of music, you can just sort of pull that off. So there's lots of different projects out there from free improvisation, artists working with it in quite free ways, right through to, um, you know, very commercial products. So what's your particular draw? What drew you into thinking that this is a is a tool I need to use or, or there are possibilities here which are particularly interesting? I think that a lot of musicians that I know who were interested in it a while ago were interested in it because they thought it could yield some interesting, strange results. So we're probably the worst uh, category for researchers because we're looking for how it's wrong and strange and uh, you know how it pushes at the limits of its programming we want things that are unpredictable and in a way you can trace this back to John Cage 
um, most, most important experimental composer, or one of the most important experimental composers of the 20th century, who would use the I Ching to sort of build these unpredictable systems and compose using chance to try and get away from himself. So I definitely think Memo, who I said I collaborated with, he and I have spoke a lot about we're interested in it while it's still weird. And when it stops being weird, we're not interested in it anymore because when it starts just sounding like another YouTube soundtrack, it's not so interesting for composers anymore. But when it's still making mistakes for musicians, it's gold dust. Um, but for researchers, it's terrible. That's where our interests sort of uh, don't align with the researchers in a, in a productive way. Abiba, Jennifer there is, is talking about like what would be the attraction for creating with AI. And I suppose the interesting thing there is that creating with the AI develops a relationship that we call a human relationship with the AI. And I wonder what that does in our understanding of the tools. You know, the sense that we engage with something emotionally when we're working with it makes us think about uh, AI tools in a very particular way. You do feel like there is something more than code. There is something that takes your brain away way that ends up portraying AI as, you know, a fully autonomous agent that can operate independently of humans. So there is so much to be to be said about that kind of understanding, that kind of then emotional attachment to AI tools. However, unfortunately, as very simple it might seem, there is also a danger in that kind of perception of AI because from our relationship to AI, uh, as we, for example, prompt a certain model, depending on how the architecture is built, we are in a way kind of providing feedback for the AI to improve, to incorporate whatever we are doing. From the prompts to where the data set comes from, to how the data sets are labeled, to the companies who produce these systems and that make them available, either open sourced or for financial gains. It's human all the way through. There is no, absolutely no AI tool that can exist independently of humans. From the beginning, from the data set, all the way to, to the scientists and the engineers that design and develop the architecture and the model itself. For example, I see a certain model. The first thing I wonder about is the data set that it's trained on, where it came from, how it was labeled, how it was you know, organized, what the taxonomy is like. I work on data sets and data sets really are the backbone of AI. A lot of the techniques for deep learning, for example, and various machine learning techniques, they're not new. We've had those since the 60s, since the 1970s and the 80s. But what really made deep learning take off, what really made AI a thing over the last 10, 15 years, it's the availability of large scale data sets. And large-scale datasets became available due to the internet. That made it easy to kind of, you know, crawl the web to collect, whether it's image data, voice data, video data, you, you know, and you, you name it. Because people upload their selfies or any information that becomes a source, that becomes collected and is assembled as a large-scale data set. And that really is important because that is what made AI a thing now. So we can't have AI tools without all these you know, various factors. Andres, that's why I wanted to bring you in there. As Abi was pointing out, these tools couldn't exist without large-scale 
uh, scraping of copyright or possibly copyright material that then becomes quite dubious in its in its ownership and authorship. Tell us a little bit about what's happening there in these large data sets that Abiba is talking about. These are often pieces of content which have been generated by individuals. You would imagine they have a, a moral right to the thing they've created. What, what is happening there? Yes, um, this is uh, where I'm probably going to bore uh, your audience with some uh, obscure legal uh, discussion. There's a lot of IP nerds out there. <laughs> yes, it really depends, and and I hate to be one of the lawyers that says uh, it depends. It depends on the jurisdiction in this uh, in this particular case. Now, in the UK, where I'm located right now, uh, since 2014, we have uh, what is known as a data mining exception. And that allows for the collecting, the analyzing, the, the development of, of tools using copyright works. So if there is an exception to copyright for scientific research purposes. So it was very, very narrow um, exception. Some countries have since then adapted, adopted other exceptions, uh, particularly the European Union in 2019 with the Digital Single Market Directive, and the EU adopted an exception again to text and data mining. This exception is also for scientific and research purposes, but uh, interestingly, it also adds an exception for commercial uses as long as the rights holders haven't opted out or reserved the rights. The final jurisdiction that has been looking at this, there are others that, that are, are working on this, is the United States, where it's all up in the air. Uh, we don't know is the answer. There is some case law, particularly a case um, called Google Books um, or Authors Guild uh, against Google. And mm. this allowed Google to scan books without infringing copyright. It was declared to be fair use. When it comes to artificial intelligence, we don't know. And there are lots of lo uh, lawsuits going on right now. So we'll have to wait until all these lawsuits are developed. So the answer is really, it depends. Some of it is legal under some jurisdictions, under some uses. Yeah. It's, it will be the answer. I'm very curious about this area in general, because it seems quite likely that OpenAI might have set itself up the way it did as a research organization in order to take advantage of that kind of uh, copyright situation. Yeah, well, OpenAI is operating in the US where there is no, no research exception. Interestingly, I think that they are safe for now because they're not showing their data. They're not showing their data sets. Uh, the people that are getting sued are the people who are opening up their data sets so everyone can can see what's what's under the hood, if, if you want to call it uh, like that. Um, so actually, transparency and openness actually makes you more liable uh, for copyright <laughs> infringement. So other organizations have been accused of this um, data washing, data laundering, academic washing that is potentially the use of these exceptions for scientific research. Um, there are a couple of organizations that have been accused of this, I'm not going to name and shame, that are conducting data mining, and text and data mining specifically for some purposes, and these are being used by commercial organizations. This is why I think the European Union allowed for this. Is the approach that I like the best, the EU's approach, which is allow scientific research but if you're doing it for commercial uses, you have to make sure that the users, that you're only scraping or using data that hasn't been objected to by the users. 
at the moment is the best compromise, I think. I, I'm at the point now where I just think that anything we put on the internet is going to be scraped and going to be used because the internet is the best way for companies to collect data. Things like ChatGPT or Bing that are trained on massive scrapings of the internet, they have all the good things and the bad things about the internet completely baked in. Biases, misogyny, racism, homophobia, transphobia, Everything you can name is baked in there already. With my students, we tried to look at Lion 5B, you know, which is the data set that OpenAI are using. And first of all, you know, nobody has a hard drive that can even download part of that data set. It is so huge. And as we start to look through it, my students were saying, but this is just junk. Like if you put in cat, for example, you get pictures of cats, but you also get memes. You get you get drawings of cats. You see what the Internet thinks is a cat, which is not just a cat. It's also jokes about a cat or the way that the Internet likes to make jokes about a cat. If I can make the comparison musically, OpenAI's MuseNet, uh, one of the data sets they used was Maestro. It's quite strange. It's mostly classical composers. Mostly the usual suspects, lots of Mozart and Beethoven. But then there's a couple of composers that I'd never heard of, I, but they could have just found the MIDI files online and they're just there. So they get, get just get hoovered up and thrown into the data set. Nobody's thinking about, is this representational in any way? Does this reflect, you know, what we think of the best pieces, which already is a contested category? Whatever you see, whether it's an image or it's a piece of music or piece of text, and I'm paraphrasing Eric Salvaggio here, is it's just, it's actually a visualization. It's not a piece of text. It's a text visualization of the data content of a data set. You know, uh, an image from OpenAI is not an image from Midjourney or Dolly or Stable Diffusion, all of which are phenomenal and really exciting and fun to use. They're simply visualizations of the content of that data set. So that's that's how I think about it. Abiba, you, you've written about the question, you know, things are, as you say, never totally autonomous and this sort of autonomy is a fiction. You've written about robot rights, which is a kind of a question that, that comes up uh, quite regularly. People begin to say, well, you know, as the complexity increases, surely, you know, and that these uh, technologies attain a new kind of status. So tell us a little bit about your, your thinking on that. Uh, we have a lot of kind of framing of large language models as conscious or sentient or, you know, do they feel pain? Should we should we worry about them? That kind of stuff is, you know, bringing up the, the question again. So the idea of rights for whether it's robotic systems, like physical humanoid-looking robots, or whether it's artificial neural networks, like large language models, the idea of treating them as agents on a par with human and debating whether they should be granted the same rights as humans rests on a huge misunderstanding about what humans are and a huge misunderstanding about what AI is. As I mentioned earlier, AI is human through and through from the data it's trained on, from a lot of the labor, like go, the people that label data sets often called, you know, micro workers or ghost workers because they are always under the hood and they are exploited underpaid uh, so from their contribution 
to the kind of the scientists and engineers that build the architecture and also the 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 you know the general public the user itself that interacts with the ai which gives feedback all the way through it's human so the idea of treating the ai as agent that then deserves a right uh, is re- deeply risks and misunderstanding but also it has consequences and the consequences are really problematic for a, 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 actually jennifer mentioned earlier about you know the 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 financial drive and the capitalist drive behind much of ai we see now and as it is there is very little transparency big corporations like openai for example despite the irony of the name being OpenAI, they don't open their models. They don't open their data sets. They are constantly finding ways to avoid responsibility. These kind of products, whether it's robot, whether it's neural networks, come from these corporations. And the idea of giving rights to, to these systems is further you know, evading responsibility from these big corporations. So in a way, for me, giving rights to, you know, AI systems is giving even further rights to big corporations to do whatever they want without any responsibility, without any accountability. And Jones, you've written a little bit about, you know, this idea that personhood is so, you know, being a person is so important in terms of uh, intellectual property that it's not under attack. But it seems like the same forces that Abiba describes there as trying to configure AIs as as persons with rights are uh, driving us to see that maybe their creations could be could be owned by them. I wonder how we're dealing with that in terms of intellectual property. I think that some of the ideas on 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 how to deal with this from a, um, fr- from a legal perspective, a, a lot of it comes from the uh, what we would call the authorship um, element. So, do machines generate works that are likely or or capable of getting copyright protection? For many years, we've only given uh, uh, copyright to works generated by human beings that's that's been the standard now what i think that we should be looking at is moving a little bit beyond the person question and i think that i, I like what aviva said before because it's, it's very much my thinking in this um i think that there is always going to be a human involved at some point and the way i think about copyright here both from the liability side but also from the authorship side is that there if there is a human involved in the decision making and the in, in in the choices that go into the creation of a work then if we are going to allocate copyright that copyright should go to that person and that is the solution that we've chosen in the uk and in other jurisdictions ireland as well where the copyright goes to the person that made the arrangements necessary for the work to be created and that sort of removes the person who question i think that it's a bit of a red herring because then we don't need to think about um robot rights or machine rights i think it, it, it's an interesting uh, exercise but for now for practical reasons if not for anything else we can try to allocate all of the rights and responsibilities on the human that is involved in the equation the, the human and the loop 
So that's how I like to think about the problem and forget a little bit about the machine that is doing everything. Just like we forget that uh, our cameras and our phones are, 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 are almost now entirely operated by artificial intelligence, and we still like to think of some agency of some form, but increasingly it's, it's just a, a, an AI that is, is actually taking your photographs. So, but you still get the copyright over your photographs. And- also, like all these, uh, they call themselves uh, non-profit groups like Lion, their motto is democratizing models, democratizing data sets and you look at who is you know the the biggest downloader of their data set it's big corporations yeah and yeah. Uh, also nobody else has a supercomputer that can <laughs> deal no, no but i think that's part of it is it's like yeah you know you need that the infrastructure you need to actually mm. start to to wrangle and train on that data set you need to be a big corporation like you you know. Yeah. Well, more than usually, that feels like uh, the beginning of a conversation rather than the end of it. But unfortunately, that is the end of the conversation uh, for this evening. Long live the humans, I say. Thank you all very much for joining in. And I kind of feel this is something we'll return to in the coming days, months and hours. And so I hope some of you will come back and, and talk some more. So I'd like to thank Jennifer Walsh, Abiba Bahani and Andreas Godemus. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.